Hey, Stephen. Hey, Tim. The title of the nuclear hostage-taking movie we watched for today's podcast is called Twilight's Last Gleaming. We also previously talked about the nuke movie by Dawn's Early Light on the podcast. Yeah, it's just too bad that the nuclear submarine movie The Hunt for Red October wasn't actually called Oh, Say Can You, Sea Leg of the Triad to complete the Star-Spangled Banner nuclear trilogy. I've got a sinking feeling, Tim, and I think you're being super critical. Welcome to another episode of the Supercritical Podcast, where we delve into the fun and oftentimes nonsensical way pop culture portrays nuclear weapons. My name is Tim Westmeyer, someone who studies nuclear weapons and works on nuclear nonproliferation for a living, and I'm joined, happily to say, again on the podcast studio over Zoom by my usual podcast co-host, Gabe. Gabe, welcome back. Hey, thanks for uh, having me back, Tim. So you're not a, a nuclear policy person, but uh, I have you on the podcast here for a certain perspective here. What do you think that is? Well, I, you know, I think you just value my uh, my movie critiques so much. I, I have such insights on these uh, films. No, I, I <laughs> just the the everyman's perspective. You know, uh, you drag me along to these things. They're always fun, and and I'm probably scratching my head at some points that uh, that some of your lay view or lay listeners might be. So. Uh, hopefully I can help out there. You thought you'd get out of seeing uh, these nuclear movies when there wasn't theaters being opened during COVID, but I still got you. I'm a, yeah, I was a hostage in my own basement uh, last uh, <laughs> Thursday night. Well, I'm also happy to say that we are joined by returning special guest, Stephen Schwartz, who is a non-resident senior fellow at the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientist, as well as the former editor of the Nonproliferation Review and editor and co-author of Atomic Audit. The Costs and Consequences of Nuclear Weapons Since 1940. Stephen, welcome back. Thank you, Tim. Glad to be here. We had, we had such a great time recently talking about the movie, The Manhattan Project. And pretty much as soon as this one was over, you suggested, hey, I think we really also should cover <laughs> Twilight's Less Gleaming. And, I, you know, I, this is one of those movies that I've, it's been on my list. And there's a whole genre of these movies where someone takes over a, a nuclear, you know, intercontinental ballistic missile, ICBM silo. For some of them are highbrow political thrillers other some of them are like blood fist five and it's some ninja attacking an icbm facility for some sort of reason is it really is a fascinating genre of film here and i'm, I'm glad you introduced uh, finally our podcast to it so wh what's your origin story for this movie and let me do a quick explanation of what it is before we get into that here it's 1977 twilight's last gleaming it's a story that starts with four escaped prisoners um out for uh, one more money-making score but instead of just robbing a bank which is you know usually where the money kept. A former U.S. Air Force general leads them to a Titan I nuclear missile base in Montana, where the crew takes over the launch facility, holds the world hostage for $10 million, Air Force One, and the U.S. president to tell the truth about how America got into the Vietnam War. So what is your origin story here, Stephen, with this movie? So I first saw this on cable television. I grew up in Los Angeles we had something called the Z Channel. There's mm. a great documentary about the Z Channel, which I recommend to anybody who's interested in that sort of thing. And uh, the company was called Theta Cable. And it uh, ran very interesting films a lot of the time. And I don't remember exactly when I would have seen this, sometime obviously after it came out. So, I, you know, late 70s, early 80s, maybe 
coming home from school early and trying not to do homework and turning on the TV, <laughs> or maybe, you know, as entertainment on the weekend. And I, and I wasn't into nuclear weapons at that point, but it impressed me as a movie. It left, it left, it left a lasting impression on me, but I never saw about it or heard much about it again. And then, as you said, I've, I've developed over the years this list of films that cover nuclear weapons and nuclear war themes. At some point, it popped into my head again, and I put it on the list. And I discovered, actually, it was on, on YouTube mm. a few years ago. But it turns out the film was restored in 2012, and it's out on DVD. And there's a great documentary about it called Aldrich and Munich, uh, about the making of the film and a bit about the director's career. You know, until I rediscovered it online, I, all I had was sort of vague memory of a few of a few scenes of Burt Lancaster and the missiles. And it was very thrilling for a teenager. And on second and third and fourth viewing, I, I look at it a little bit differently now, but I still think it's a pretty good film. Yeah, it's as you mentioned, it was, it was directed by Robert Aldrich, who has quite a career here. The Longest Yard, The Dirty Dozen, Flight of the Phoenix. Uh, these are all great movies, and they all tend to have some sort of a theme of you know, someone, some sort of group of people, or maybe a single individual rallying against some kind of power. The one thing else I wanted to note about this is that the music is here by Jerry Goldsmith, who I love. Uh, he did the, the soundtrack for Rudy. So I always like to point that out when he's, he's on a lot of our movies. Um, he does a lot of films, obviously. If I'm not mistaken, he also did the soundtrack for Star Trek The Motion Picture. Mm -hmm. Another Star Trek connection in the film that Gonna be quite a bit of that here. Uh, it was based on a 1972 book it's called Viper 3 by Walter Wager, who wrote books uh, that were also for the basis for Die Hard 2 in the Mission Impossible TV series. You know, as we discussed, you know, Robert um, usually puts uh, some very interesting plot motivations for his, you know, various stories. So he added for this movie, we'll talk about the political Vietnam War and a bunch of the other stuff that was added for the movie and wasn't necessarily in the book here. And you already mentioned, uh, Stephen, some of the great uh, cast people we have in this movie. You want to name a couple of these before we start to delve into the plot? Uh, you've got Burt Lancaster in the lead role, has General Lawrence Dell, who is leading his fellow convicts in taking over this missile silo, this missile base, really. You've got Richard Widmark as General Martin McKenzie, who is the commander-in-chief of Strategic Air Command. Charles Durning uh, plays President David Stevens, a relatively... If the timeline is right, a relatively newly elected president, the film takes place in, in 1981, so he would have been elected in 1980. Uh, Paul Winfield, great actor, uh, as a former uh, colonel demoted to private. And Gabe, you, you remember him from uh, from Star Trek II, Wrath of Khan? Sure. Yes. Yeah. And Durning, yeah. of course, we know from The Sting and Tootsie and Dick Tracy and any number of other movies. Widmark is, uh, both Lancaster and Widmark, by the way, have been in other nuclear films, Lancaster, of course, Seven Days in May, mm -hmm. Ark and the Bedford Incident. Burt Young, everybody will recognize as <laughs> Polly from all the Rocky movies, who plays another convict, uh, Augie Garvis. Uh, and then you've got a bunch of old-timey, really, like, old Hollywood actors. Yeah, like Citizen Kane era. Yeah, Joseph Cotton from Citizen Kane, Melvin Douglas from being there and lots of other things. Melvin Douglas is the Secretary of Defense, Cotton is the Secretary of state and then there's some fun cameos too i'm sure i know you want to mention yeah let me let me just throw this in here um there's one uh, gentleman uh, william uh, hootkins 
uh, who was in uh, the nuke movies Superman 4, The Quest for Peace. You know, I consider Star Wars uh, to be a nuclear movie. He plays the famous Porkins, one of the, the red uh, team X-Wing pilots. He is, he's in this movie for just a quick second here. And there's also a quick cameo of uh, John Ratzenberger before he was in Cheers. He's also the guy who's like a voice in every Pixar movie. Uh, he plays a guy uh, trying to set up a, a nuclear bomb on the other side of the silo blast doors. He's also in... The 1978 Superman movie, he plays another missileer, a guy kind of working the control panel. <laughs> Typecasting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. This guy just loved this. So it's right around the same time period, too. So so this movie, you know, Gabe, I don't think you've... Have you what's, have you heard about this movie before we started to dive into it for the podcast before? No, absolutely not. And, you know, I've, I've heard uh, about, obviously, some of Aldrich's other movies, uh, famous ones. So I was a little surprised to find out that you know, that, you know, his involvement here didn't really lead to, I guess, greater dividends at the box office, because it sounds like it only made 4.5 million on a $6 million budget. So, uh, so it seems like a swing and a miss for, for him, unfortunately. It was quite a cast. It was uh, very heavily promoted as a big kind of thriller action movie. Definitely much more of a thinker, particularly the plot twist kind of right at the last couple five minutes or so really is not probably what a lot of people expected. And that might have had something to do with the, the box office return. But critics like it. It scores 80% um, fresh with critics from on Rotten Tomatoes, except for some contemporary critics like the New York Times absolutely hated it, gave it three stars. The review of, of this movie in uh, the New York Times is one of the more <laughs> rough reviews I felt bad for Aldrich while reading it. But audiences more or less liked it. They gave it a 74% uh, rating score, which is you know, pretty good for a movie from this time period. Any ideas, guys, why this fell flat a little bit? I mean, is it was it just... People got were tired of the nuclear trope by this time, and you know we were on to other things. Or uh, I, you know, I don't know. I mean, I was alive at the time, but I didn't see the movie when it came out in theaters. I mean, it would have come out actually around the time of Star Wars, which is probably what see, we were yeah, all paying I think attention. That's probably a biggie, yeah. No, so I think that probably was partly responsible for swamping it. I mean, it's very firmly in the mode of the conspiracy-laden movies of the 1970s that came after Watergate. Vietnam and Watergate, and this movie mentions one but not the other. I'm not sure it had big names. I mean, Aldrich had a very strong political point of view, which is interesting because a leftist political point of view, which is interesting because he grew up in money and in, in the elites on the East Coast. In fact, Nelson Rockefeller, the hmm. future vice president, was his cousin, Nelson Aldrich Rockefeller. When he went west, to go work in Hollywood, his family immediately disowned him. He just made these movies and he liked injecting political points of view, his political points of view into them. This was no different. In fact, this movie was originally uh, Lorimar, which was just getting into the movie business after doing a lot of television, purchased the rights for this book and, and started developing it. Burt Lancaster was offered a role and passed on it. And then when Aldris was attached as director, he came back mm-hmm. and without even looking at the script said, I want to do this. Aldrich was offered the film and said, only if I can change the screenplay, because it has to be more about more than just these guys want money. And so there's this whole political subplot in there, which is important to the film. Some people think it bogs it down. I mean, it could have been that people were sort of tired of that perspective. I I, I don't know. I'd have to go back and look and see what other movies were, were coming out at that time. I mean, certainly a bad review in the New York Times probably didn't help, but there's got to be something else going on. And, and this was just a few years before 1983 when there were, a, you know, a dozen nuclear movies that came out, whether it's on TV or war games and some other. So, but this is great. This is, this is a lot of questions for us to think about 
when we when we cover the podcast here. But uh, I got two other ones that I want us to to think about, and then we'll kind of see what kind of answers we come up with at the end. The first is, you know, what would it actually take to, uh, you know, overthrow the security and take over a nuclear ICBM launch facility? And what once you did, what could you do with it without having all of maybe the, the necessary tools and codes and stuff that you might need? So we'll get into that. I'm really glad Steven's here to be able to chat about this. And then secondly, this movie makes a lot of parallels directly for the need for credibility in foreign policy. It talks about, you know, why that was so important and maybe drove the United States into the war against North Vietnam, but also how interwoven credibility in foreign policy is with the logic of nuclear deterrence. And they, they make these connections pretty strong. And I think that was where maybe at a point in the movie when my attention started to wane when that it came right back when this was here so i'm excited to get to that section we're going to now run through the plot of the movie as usual spoiler warning if you haven't seen this and like steven mentioned pop on youtube and watch the full movie just don't tell youtube about that so we can leave it up there uh because otherwise it's it's a movie you have to rent from amazon prime or i I think i ended up purchasing the blu-ray and uh, lent it to gabe because i don't think gabe was going to spend three dollars on this one (laughs) So the way we're going to do this is we're going to break the movie into three parts, three acts of the film. I'll take over the the beginning of it here. Uh, Steven's going to handle the middle and Gabe's going to handle the the big kind of climactic end here. So I will get started uh, into this. I've got my finger on the button and you've got 60 minutes. When this phone rings again, it better be the president of the United States. You mean to tell me a renegade general's got his finger on the button of a Titan missile? The button can launch nine Titan missiles. Twenty-seven! Mike, I request we took on the power! The real power! Twilight's last gleaming. Rated R. Our movie opens on the White House on a beautiful Sunday morning, November 16, 1981, uh, which you can tell it's in a fictional alternate world because in uh, in our world, that was actually on a Monday. So this is clearly, you can't sue uh, Robert Aldrich about any of this because it's a completely different universe. We meet President Stevens. He's shaving in his bathroom and he cuts himself a little bit um, after his valet announces that he's got two visitors. So clearly he's not a great start to his day that he would prefer. And these these visitors, you know, what they're trying to do is it's someone he knows, I think was a, a professor and, and he's in college. He has a family friend who is being arrested and about to be, I think it's about to be extradited, right, to another country. And it's, it's an individual who's been accused of, you know, terrorist activities. And the the professor says, you know, please don't, don't extradite him, you know, give him a pardon. Please don't let this happen. He's a close personal friendly friend. He's he's not like everyone thinks he is. And the President Stevens, you know, talks a little bit about how he's going to do his best here, but he, he just doesn't know how he's going to make it work. And, you know, the professor leaves and is very upset by it. But at least he says, you know, you're a man of your word. You tried. I understand. Please. Tell your daughter. David, I'll tell my daughter I did the best I could. And I'll tell myself... Though you are not a brilliant student, you are an honest man. And as soon as the guy leaves one of uh, on, on Sunday to come watch some Sunday football, uh, one of his friends, Brigadier General O'Rourke is his name, but I don't know what his like job is on the cattle, but he seemed like to be a friend of Stevens, comes on, flips on the TV, starts watching football and says, oh, about that kid? Oh, yeah, yeah. You Didn't you trade him for like so we can get access to some sort of a base so we can put U.S. forces there? And you can see Stevens is conflicted by it, but he's also, he, he knows that he lied essentially to this guy that he once trusted. 
So the next portion of the movie, we, we we're on a road. We're out in Montana, somewhere in Montana, and we see a crew of U.S. Air Force officers. They're driving in a pickup truck on a country road on their way to a shift change at a Titan One ICBM underground launch facility near the Malmstrom Air Force Base in uh, near Great Falls, Montana. Those podcast listeners who listened to our episode on the Star Trek movie First Contact, uh, I know Gabe, you were you were on that one. Um, you 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 really were the big driving force for us to do that particular episode. Uh, they may be familiar with this setup because it was a Titan II mi- missile base in Montana that was used for that movie as the as the pr- as the prop, but also as part of the story to build the uh, Earth's first warp capable spaceship. And I know you and uh, Stephen are both big Star Trek fans, so I'm sure we're going to get into that trivia a little bit later. So what starts as like a very leisurely drive, um, they do stop at some point because there's a motorist who seems to be injured on the side of the road. And when they go to stop to help, it's very quickly turns into a deadly ambush. These four escaped prisoners capture the crew. They don their uniforms. They con their way onto the ICBM launch facility, uh, which is identified as called Silo 3. These four prisoners, well, you know, quickly become three prisoners because one of them is a, a bit of a loose cannon and is gunned down by his own. This includes former U.S. Air Force General Lawrence Dale, who is now disgraced, but we learn at one point he knows this particular base and this equipment better than anybody else. He was railroaded by the U.S. government for demanding a a state secret to be revealed. So a very, very fascinating character. Seems to be a bit of a leader amongst this uh, crew of prisoners. We also meet Willis Powell. He's a former colonel who was demoted a private. He's pretending to be an expert on all of this ICBM tech so we can get included in the escape. So he's not actually an expert in any of this. And we also meet Augie Garvis, a guy who talks a talk, roughs up some hostages, but kind of folds like a lawn chair under pressure. So they, they, the prisoners try to break their way into this you know, ICBM facility, but, but why? Well, the reason we, we learn is because this silo holds nine of these Titan I nuclear-armed missiles, and Dell's plan is to use the threat of launching these missiles at their targets in Russia, which will certainly cause the Russians to respond back with a nuclear strike against the United States. Mr. President, this is General McKenzie. We have a crisis situation at one of our missile centers, sir. Three escaped convicts led by a former general in the Air Force. They penetrated an ICBM launch center near Malmstrom. And, sir, we've confirmed that Silo 3 is isolated. Isolated? What the hell does that mean? It means, sir, we're unable to inhibit launching. You mean to tell me a renegade general's got his finger on the button of a Titan missile? No, sir. The button can launch nine Titan missiles. Don't those missiles have atomic warheads? Yes, sir. Titan's our first line of defense. The plan is to force the U.S. government to give three um, of their demands, you know, as they explained, uh, you know, when the, when the president kind of calls and tries to negotiate. They, they want $10 million, which seems like a lot, but it's, you know, it's $43 million today. So it's definitely a lot to split up amongst those four guys. At least you know, now it's down to three. And then I think it's one point it's down to two. So it's a pretty good amount of money for two guys. They want a getaway ride to a foreign destination on Air Force One. And here's the real kicker here. They want the U.S. president to come to the silo publicly release a secret memo that have notes from a National Security Council meeting that detail the real reason why the United States got into fighting the Vietnam War. One more thing, sir. I believe the time has come for you to restore the confidence of the American people and their government by disclosing the true reasons why this country was made to endure a war that cost over 50,000 American lives and 20 times that many Southeast Asians, all for nothing. We will broadcast the contents of NSC document 9759. 
And after we arrive at our destination, you will appear on television and inform the American people of its contents. And it seems like Dale is the only one who really cares amongst his prisoner crew about the last of those demands. Uh, but either way, they get past security cameras. They get past this very sensitive door alarm uh, right outside of the, the silo c- c- launch, uh, you know, command room. They get past several booby traps on the ICBM launch control panel that either release poisonous gas or some sort of explosive C4, uh, whether if you touch it the wrong way or if uh, maybe that panel is, you know, activated from remote uh, by strategic air command if they think something like this is happening. This is Lawrence Dell, and we have taken control of Silo 3. You will inform McKenzie that we have knocked out his cutoffs and inhibitors, and we can now launch his nine birds. I repeat, we have full launch control. Um, U.S. President Stevens, as you mentioned, he's briefed on the situation. He's really upset that this could possibly happen, and he wants to learn more about this memo. He seems to not be aware of this particular National Security Council meeting, so he quietly summons members of his cabinet to the Oval Office. And later on, back at the silo, through some kind of light torture and several politically laced monologues by General Dell about his motivations, you know, becoming disgruntled by the U.S. abuse of the military and the American public, the convicts get access to these launch keys that are behind a locked safe door. And Dell and his dwindling crew, you know, go up against the U.S. security forces by the, you know, in the, U- in the U.S. Air Force. They're led by Dell's former bitter rival, General McKenzie, who's the SAC commander, Strategic Air Command commander. They lead a diversionary attack using personnel carriers, armored personnel carriers, and these tanks, which are very clearly German panzer tanks because the movie was filmed in Bavaria and kind of co-funded by West Germany. But either way, they get some tanks, they come in, and it looks like everything's going to go, you know, crazy. They start to uh, put the missiles very slowly, raise them up out of their silos and say, look, back off. Everybody backs off. But then it turns out that the whole thing was just a diversion because another crew of people secretly enter through a helicopter uh, into the base and are trying to get a nuclear weapon, a small nuclear weapon kind of exploding right outside of the blast doors just to be able to destroy everything so they don't have to negotiate with these with these convicts. We place it directly outside the door, there'll be jelly in a millisecond. This weapon, what is it exactly? It's a miniature atomic bomb. Small, clean nuclear device. What about radiation fallout? Oh, 60 feet, minimal. Define minimal. Well, acceptable. Acceptable to whom? The people of Montana? Considering the gravity of the situation, aren't we compelled to take this risk? The alarm gets triggered on this like highly sensitive silo door. Everybody quickly runs and, and aborts the attack. Uh, at the last second, the president won't give them the code and the, the, the go-ahead. Dale feels safe at this point. He lowers the missiles back into the silo. And we're kind of at this very tense, you know, moment here. General McKenzie's upset by this, but we all know now that he has the keys, that General Dale has the keys. He has the willingness and the capacity to carry out this threat. So now I'm going to throw it over to Stephen. Kind of what happens now in the Oval Office once we had this exciting, thrilling, you know, nuclear hostage taking and almost near miss attack. It's, it's a pretty wild time we've got at the moment. So the president has summoned some members of his cabinet to the Oval Office, uh, instructing his aide to bring them in secretly through some underground tunnel because he doesn't want anybody else to know what's going on. So this is already like a subset of the government that's involved in dealing with this. And there's a real sense that we can't let too many people know about this because it's embarrassing and it could actually trigger some problems uh, with Russia. Seated in 
a larger than life Oval Office, which was built that way to accommodate the large cameras of the time, are the people the president has summoned. There's his Secretary of State, his Attorney General, Secretary of Defense, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the head of the CIA, and the president's personal military aide and friend, uh, General O'Rourke. Once the president gets a look at this this memo, this National Security Council memo that Dell wants to be wants him to read live on on television, he is furious to discover what's in there. One gets a sense that uh, he doesn't really understand how the government has worked for the last <laughs> twenty or thirty years, maybe. Uh, which you know, it, it it could be realistic depending on who you're talking about. You know, he says that basically the the the, the underlying purpose of the memo and everything that flows from it in terms of U.S. foreign policy is that the United States will, through fighting wars that come up to but don't get close to nuclear war, will demonstrate to Russia that we're willing to essentially behave like animals, we're willing to inflict the Holocaust if necessary, all to demonstrate the credibility of our foreign policy and really the credibility of our willingness to go up to nuclear war if necessary. In order to do that, we have to show that we're willing to fight other smaller wars. Are you gentlemen telling me that more boys are going to die? The response is yes. Again, the president. And these deaths will be totally in vain. Again, the response is yes. Again, the president. No territory will be gained. There's no hope of winning, and we have no chance of defeating the enemy. The response is yes. And now we come to the big one. The president says, and I quote, you men are telling me that the objective of this war is to demonstrate to the Russians a brutal national will, that we have the willingness to inflict and suffer untold punishment. And no matter what the cost in American blood, we would perpetuate a theatrical holocaust. And all for, for, for credibility. Arthur, what in the name of the Holy Father were you thinking of? You attended this meeting. How did it happen? It happened because this country needed a foreign policy that took into account the implications of nuclear weapons. In simpler words, because of the unprecedented destructive effect of those weapons, all-out war became known as uh, counterproductive. Mr. President, the, the consensus was, or still is as far as I know, that we had to fight limited wars to prevent the nuclear wars. Kind of bizarre, if you, if you think about it. So Stevens, as he's learning more about this, says he's, you know, he's disgusted that the Vietnam War was essentially a PR gimmick. The Secretary of Defense then says, you know, if this incident were ever to be revealed, this incident with Dell taking over Silo three historians might consider General Dale to be some kind of modern messiah. And uh, the Secretary of State pipes up, that's Joseph Cotton's character, and says our national security has been defined uh, by two words, limited war. So you're getting a sense here that these people are, they're familiar with this, even if they maybe have not seen the memo itself before. And they're actually quite comfortable with it, whereas the president definitely is not. Secretary of State says that the consensus here is that, you know, we cannot allow this incident to become public. The Secretary of Defense, after some further discussion here, they ultimately decide that the president is going to have to go out to Montana to meet with Dell as opposed to 
releasing this thing over television, which becomes a moot point after the botched raid on the silo fails. And the Secretary of Defense says, well, we can take some defensive measures you know, to make sure you're protected. But there's a real sense that the president might not come out of this alive. And Stevens is furious at this. And he says, I have no intention of being sacrificed for the sins of others, period. And he storms off into, uh, well, I guess he goes upstairs to his to the private residence. And O'Rourke, his friend, his military aide, um, follows him. And it basically talks him uh, into doing this. The president absolutely doesn't want to for reasons that are completely obvious and totally justifiable. So Stevens is saying this, he says, but it's important to point out, he says, what we've witnessed today makes me understand that the United States can't afford to maintain its present direction. Now the time has come for this government to make a declaration to the American people to take them into its confidence, to explain to them what has actually taken place since the end of World War II. The people must have a right to control their own destinies, whatever the problems are. They have a right, and we have an obligation to trust them. Sort of a shocking thing to say mm-hmm. in, in the timeline of the, of the movie. He then asks the Secretary of Defense, uh, he agrees, okay, I, if you're going to force me to go out to Montana, fine, get the Vice President back from this trip he's on, make sure he's in the White House before I land. But if I go, I want you to commit that you will release this document on national television two weeks after the new president, the vice president, is inaugurated if the worst happens. And the Secretary of Defense gives him his solemn promise that he will that he will do that. Yes, Mr. President. My word of honor. And so then we go on to the next stage, which is uh, I'll let Gabe take over. So so we yeah, the action kind of shifted mostly to the Oval Office, uh, but now it really shifts back to the the silo. Yeah, we're we're gonna have you take over now when it gets on an airplane. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Thank you. My my one little <laughs> insights here. Um, but no, at the uh, at the silo, you know, there, there's a lot of tension there because they're they're worried that something's happening. There are these armored personnel carriers and the hostage takers. They almost realize that there are, are snipers there, which, which there are all set up for this plan with the president to, to visit. You think there are sharpshooters sitting out in those APCs? They don't have to be in them. They could be under a rock or behind a blade of grass. I mean, who knows? Maybe they got a midget out there. What? Some little bitty fellow we never even saw. There are no midgets in the United States Air Force. The General Dell calls McKenzie and kind of tells him not to try anything funny. It's part of this ongoing, like little cat and mouse game between those two guys. We get to, I think for me, this is the most interesting part of the movie, actually. Um, Powell, Dell's, you know, counterpart, who does not have these lofty ideals that, that Dell has. I think he just wanted to get out. He was just wanted to get out of prison. He figures this out that the military and, and the powers that be, the whatever cabal that actually runs things, they're never going to allow the president to make that speech to release this information. And he even goes further and says, look, they will kill the president if that means getting the two of them as well to stop all this. Don't you understand? You are messing with the brains of this country. But we're not going out there alone. The president will be right between us. You really are pitiful. And they do not give a sh- about the president of the United States. They will kill us all before they let that poor bastard make that speech on television. You declared war, but they got the muscle and they are going to keep it. 
and Stevens is expendable. General Dell gets a little bit desperate. He decides he's going to launch and just, you know, blow everything up. And Powell kind of, you know, stands up to him and says, look, you know, nobody grow up, General. Nobody honors anything. That's not a reason to blow up the whole world. Grow up, General. Nobody honors nothing. That's no reason to blow up the whole world. It's kind of interesting. It mirrors that discussion that took place in the Oval Office. But for me, this is where Dell's whole thing kind of unravels and up until this point, I, I saw him as acting somewhat rationally. I was a little bit sympathetic. And here you just realize he, he's a crazy man at this point. And his whole like holding the world hostage. To me, it was very like meta of like the whole idea behind nuclear weapons. Idealistic uh, intent, but devastating outcome type thing. Dell tries to force Powell at gunpoint to launch uh, to turn the other key, but Powell declines. They decide they're going to still try to get the money and get out. So Air Force One lands. Uh, the airfield is, for some reason, right next to the silos. I don't know. You guys will probably have some thoughts about this. Uh, that seemed a little bit strange to me that they would put it right there. The Air Force One, by the way, looks okay. Um, the paint job looked pretty good. Uh, there's some things that would give it away. The engines weren't quite right and missing some antennas, but I think there's some more on that to say later on. But President leaves Air Force One, and it's this part of the movie, it's very quiet. There's not a lot of dialogue. It's kind of long scenes of the president leaving the airplane, uh, going down the same corridor, the same elevator, and then the same corridors that the uh, hostage takers went down. So you kind of see him retrace the steps. And finally, they meet, president meets with with Dell and Powell. Um, and they, it, it was interesting, like almost instantly kind of build this rapport because, you know, they realize that the president is kind of on their side and is going to cooperate. Uh, it's almost kind of a little bit of a friendly uh, outcome. I mean, that changes once they get outside. I think Powell points a gun at him and apologizes, but, you know, he realizes they're going to use him as a human shield. And again, there's this like long walk to go back to Air Force One where they're they're going to leave, fly away with the money and uh, release the secret. And it, it's kind of a lot of tension. But General McKenzie, um, he repeatedly orders the three snipers to shoot Dell and Powell, even if the president is in the way. So what if the president's at our side? Those convicts are not to reach Air Force One. Is that understood? Yes, sir. Shots get fired. Uh, the president drops to his knees. I think there's a little bit of a... It's clear that the uh, Dell and Powell are clearly killed. It's uncertain for a second whether the president was actually shot or whether he just kind of fell down out of shock. But no, it, it turns out that the president was shot. O'Rourke goes to him and is like sobbing, you know, for his friend who is dying. But, you know, in his like with his last strength, the president says to the secretary of defense... Again, Mr. President. Will you keep your word? Will you tell the people? Uh, but the Secretary of Defense, he just he just waffles and he he doesn't say anything and walks away as POTUS dies, and uh, we get this dramatic. Uh, shot cutting away with uh, a very like soulful rendition of My Country Tis of Thee um, played over the credits. So um, yeah, that's uh, kind of a, a very uh, interesting ending. Uh, kind of all the action comes together quite quite quickly um, to resolve everything. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
what powerful scene is in the in the elevator uh going going up to the surface and general dale you know thanks the president you know says he's finally proud for the first time since coming home after the vietnam war uh believes it sense you get a sense that he like believes now the system is is working or at least he's he's thinking this you know through his head but then it's very clear too once he it has to leave the the bunker that he's very unsure of himself and it's it's pal who now is to kind of has to take over it and dale really seems to be a little bit broken you know once he realizes how exposed they are that's the movie here uh steven any, any concluding thoughts on the plot here just on your the point you just made yeah dell has this really oddly quaint notion that president stevens is is a good man and will do the right thing i'd like you to know sir the first time since now i feel i've really come home yeah. everybody else in gunman mckenzie his superior the commander-in-chief of SAC, other people, the folks who railroaded him. By the way, we find out that, okay, it's, it's a little muddled about Dell's career, but he helped design the missile base, which is how he was had the knowledge to get in there and operate it. But he was also in Vietnam. When he came back, he was, as many veterans were, disgusted with the war and apparently got into an altercation with a brother of, a, of an MIA soldier. And in the altercation, the brother died because that some of the characters said he had a bad ticker. And so because Dell had been a sort of a thorn in the Air Force's side since coming back from Vietnam, and particularly with McKenzie, he'd gotten a hold of this memo. He understood what the truth was, and he wanted the truth to come out. They railroaded him, as O'Rourke says, and they trumped up these charges to murder and threw him in jail. His wife left him. So he's basically got nothing. Yeah. He's like a death row, I think. How they broke out. I went and looked, actually, because the prison's supposed to be in Helena, which it turns out is about an hour and a half drive from Great Falls. So logistically, it sort of it sort of works. By the way, the film takes in place entirely over the span of one day. In fact, not even a whole day, from early morning to maybe late afternoon, early evening, you know, Montana you can, time. You can get a lot done, Stephen, when you have split screens. Uh, <laughs> split screens movie, we should talk about. Yeah, yeah the movie takes but, a but to your point, so Dell, Dell really has this quaint notion that, that Stevens will do the right thing, even despite everything else that the government and the military has done to him. He still thinks that one person at the top can make a difference. And Stephen actually does want to, but he's either stupid or naive enough he doesn't fully realize what the forces are that are raid against him. And I have some questions about why he and the Secret Service put himself in that position, but we can get into that in a few minutes. <laughs> well, let's get super critical about, about the stuff here. There's a lot to cover. I hope the people you know, listening still enjoyed the, the plot discussion as fast as it was, because there's a lot we really want to delve into about the the nuclear, you know, different themes and stuff that's shown on screen and, and kind of what the questions that are driven out you know, from this particular plot. So this is where I think we want to spend a lot of our time. Um, the first one I, I think is really fascinating. This is a really a small thing, but I it, it shows that the the kind of the way that people were thinking about this when they were writing the movie. I know General Dale and, and Willis Powell, not, not only do they debate about like the, the idea that Willis says, like they're just going to kill the president. Like they're never going to let the secret come out. They even have this funny dialogue back and forth about of whether or not it will even be POTUS on the plane. They'll probably get a body double. And that's when I, when I first saw uh, Porkins on the jeep come in i thought oh they're gonna do a body switch uh with porkins because they have similar body types but no it wasn't that uh but but the joke is is that powell says at one point like 
they're they're probably snipers hidden in those you know armored personnel carriers. They probably even got midgets with guns up in there that we don't see. And this really offends General Dale. He like turns and says, you know, there are no midgets in the U.S. Air Force. <laughs> and of course, my my brain immediately went to the uh, uh you know a couple years later um the MGM one three four A midget man uh, road mobile platform. So it's kind of a playoff of of Minuteman. This was something that was a prototype. Uh, the U.S. never really had a deployed you know road mobile platform, but it was in the early 1990s but cold war you know ended and the program was canceled but we we get into this i forget which uh oh in our episode on uh, spies like us we get into the the midget man you know missile here but i, I think it's really fascinating here that the the air force didn't want to build uh, a, a road mobile system but then eventually it did because it was all kinds of bureaucratic politics and stuff that we, we get into in that episode but there almost was a, a, a midget man in the u.s air force but so maybe dell was just you know saw that ahead into the future here so for the yeah for the uh for the uninitiated viewer my mind did not go there but this no. is just one of a few uh like kind of cringeworthy uh moments in this movie i mean this is like another one where I think Dell like makes some racial comment to to Powell. I'm just like, uh, and then uh, also very interesting, like almost no women in this movie, which I guess is a sign of the times. And I think I read somewhere that there was supposed to be a female first lady, that mm-hmm. there was some footage yeah. of that. Yeah, it's very, it's like all men, mostly white men, like, you know, determining the fate of the world, so. Yeah, and the cabinet is like old white men. And well, there's one, there is, sorry, there is, the, the attorney general is an African-American. Yeah. And a notable actor at that, but you're right. It is it is noticeable. Even Seven Days in May pivots around this woman who was Burt Lancaster's character's paramour, and and Kirk Douglas has to go to her and try to get some love letters to blackmail him. <laughs> but this, yeah, I mean, apart from a nurse and a, a secretary and an Air Force lieutenant or a colonel or something like that, it's pretty much it. But you're right. There was in the script the president was married. You're kind of watching this thinking. Is he is he a bachelor? Is it, what's going on here? I didn't check to see if he had a wedding ring, but he met, he mentions the wife because he talks about the wife's painting. He does talk about the wife's painting. Uh, yes, yeah, yeah. sorry, you know you do know he has a wife, but she's like not there at all. Yeah. Uh, and oh, sorry, and actually, General McKenzie when he gets beeped in church on Sunday morning mm-hmm. to be alerted that Dell has commandeered the missile complex. That was a he's pretty there. funny scene. He's there with his wife. She doesn't say anything, but yeah. So the president, there is one point, actually, we should mention that where when they first get into the, the complex, they go down the elevator and they've got to walk down a long tunnel to actually get to the control center. And the missiles sort of are going off that, that tunnel, which is more or less accurate, but they're much further away in mm-hmm. real life. Bert Young, uh, Augie Gavras, is intrigued by this and he goes and he sees one of the missiles up there and he's like, you know, to Powell, come, come and look at this. <laughs> They're supposed to be breaking into the, into the launch control. So Powell goes, he goes up there with it and he goes and looks at the missile and it's, again, it's like 82 feet high. And he's looking at it and he's like, whoa, this is like Star Trek all over again, which is funny because yeah. five years later, Paul Winfield played a captain in Star Trek II Wrath of Khan. Of course, he couldn't have known at the time. And why you would associate an ICBM with Star Trek at that point, I don't know, but the screenwriter did that but yeah it's it's there they all have interesting lines i mean powell is impressed augie gavras thinks that the tunnel looks like the holland tunnel because he's a typical <laughs> new yorker or maybe from new jersey either way you know he's got the accent for it well let's talk a little bit about what the titan one missile it looks like because there's a lot here that's really interesting because it's not only you know it, from a simple like wow did they get that right or wrong on the screen but it presents 
as a fascinating from a like a plot or script writing perspective. You need certain things in movies to make them work. So I think it's really interesting to, to get this to go to, to the, the plot itself kind of runs through. And it's because if people know about, you know, these things, they might go, well, you couldn't have that story in real life. So it's it, it both is scary to think about how fast things can move uh, these days when it comes to launching nuclear weapons. And it, is, it really doesn't provide much time for a very, you know, thrilling debate on any of this stuff. It's so rote and really almost to a certain point, like machine and robotic, like the movie needed something to slow things down. So what it went with was the Titan one missile. Uh, this is a, a, about a hundred feet high, got a 10 foot diameter, you know, pretty big, heavy missile, about 270,000 pounds when fully fueled. It is a two-stage liquid-fueled rocket. And this is very important because this, this is this particular propellant. It required to be fueled really right before it was about to launch. So it took a little bit of time uh, when you would fuel it. You'd have to put it into when it was underground in its hardened silo. You couldn't, Stephen probably knows more about why, you know, or even Gabe, honestly, in terms of his, his fuel for his planes. You know, you can't put the fuel in these rockets for long, long periods of time. This kind of fuel could start to corrode right it becomes a little bit more unstable or you just couldn't fuel it for a long time so that of course creates challenges for you as needing to set up a system that if you know there's incoming bombers or missiles you need to be able to fuel these things up and get them out quickly well the titan one had a little bit of that problem so you had to fuel these things it took about 15 minutes and really you know it doesn't take that long uh you know for a Minuteman or for you know the 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 soviet equivalents for those to kind of come over here it's about 30 minutes so 15 minute fueling time is quite a lot but what it does allow you to do is to take these things fuel them slow raise them up and allows you to kind of have them up there ready to launch and then it creates and from a plot perspective this interesting dynamic moment here but Stephen, anything else you wanted to add on the titan one missile at this stage well i would just add uh that you know the titan one was only deployed from 1962 to 1965 so for three years Mm -hmm. it was developed in tandem with the atlas icbm the idea being that if one of them didn't work out the other one hopefully would they both worked out, and because of the nature of the military-industrial complex and the interest of members of Congress, they both got deployed <laughs> and put in the field, and then they were both scrapped relatively quickly. So, again, this movie, the book was written in 72. The film came out in 77. It takes place in 81. Titan One missiles were long gone by that point. We already we had solid-fueled Minuteman missiles in the ground in addition to liquid-fueled Titan II. But I think the reason, I mean, I don't know, Walter Wager is unfortunately long gone, but I suspect that the reason that he picked the Titan I to the extent that he picked it is that it does offer the ability to, you have to raise the missile to the surface on an elevator. And it's very obvious what you're doing. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so the only way to show that Dell is serious and to build tension is to have those missiles slowly coming up. When are they going to get to the top? When are they going to fire? Whereas everything, all the, the newer missiles, they sit in the silo, you turn a key, the door slides off, and they're gone. Mm-hmm. And you know that's it. And that's you can't build a lot of tension that way. So I suspect that's the reason for that. But this was an obsolete decommissioned system by the time the movie came out. Historically, it makes absolutely no sense at all. But from a story perspective, and you know maybe he thought up this story in the 60s and only wrote mm-hmm. it down in 72, it makes sense in that regard. I would note that they don't really talk much about the what the missiles are armed with. They say, don't those have somebody at some point in the Oval Office says, aren't those armed with atomic warheads? Like, uh, <laughs> duh, you know, those are ICBMs. Yes. I mean, in fact, Titan One was armed with the same warhead that the Atlas ENFs were, which was the 4.5 megaton W38. 
So pretty sizable pretty big, weapon. Yeah. So that that that's the history of, of, of that weapon system. So it, it's it's claim to fame is appearing in this movie, really. <laughs> so just a, I mean, just a question, Tim, going back to your comment about, you know, needing to fuel it up. I, one thing I was wondering is it just seems like very lean that you only need a couple of people in the silo to prep everything for launch. And I thought it'd be a lot more human power intensive. Any, was that kind of accurate that, that it just, uh, you know, a few guys in the, in this command center could, could do it. They actually needed four people in the launch control center, some responsible for the fueling operations and some responsible for targeting and launching the earlier missiles. The Atlas required a lot more people. Yeah, I mean, the liquid fuel is, and the other reason is liquid fuel is extremely volatile. So you don't want it sitting <laughs> in a missile with a nuclear warhead any longer than it has to be. So beyond the corrosive factor, that that's a, that's an issue too. Uh, but so no, there there would have been, additional people. There would have been also security people. And you saw in the film, there were some cooks and other people that were tossed down some stairs rather ungraciously. So there were additional people that would have been involved. And then of course, as Dell says at one point, there were other launch control centers that control this squadron. There are uh, Titan ones were deployed in in groups of three, but there were nine for a squadron. Each group of three had its own launch control capsule. So there would have been Two other launch control centers. I think they said four in the movie, which isn't correct. There's a total of three. And I'm not sure how that system worked, but for Minuteman, each launch control center controls 10 missiles, then that's a flight. And then fly flights is a squadron, so 50 missiles. And so you've got five launch control centers controlling 50 missiles. And in order to launch, any two of them have to agree, have to basically vote by turning their keys. So three could say no or object and the missiles would still fly. But you have to have two or four people working in concert to make it happen. Presumably with this system, you would have to have at least one of the launch control center doing that as well. So which raises the point, Dell probably couldn't do this completely on his own, although in the movie they cut away some systems that are supposed to inhibit launch. So mm-hmm. in the reality of the movie, maybe maybe that's possible. I, I think it's basically from the time period when the Titan 1 or 2 kind of started to be retired, uh, up until 1981, the, the, the future they've added, not only... You know, they rearranged how one center can do nine uh, missiles or nine birds. They refer to them a lot. But also they've added the the poisonous gas. That's ridiculous. Very interesting. Yeah, you don't want to add that kind of level of complexity to your your command system. Also, (laughs) the idea that it could be remotely detonated. That would be like you would you would tell that to the the Soviet Union they'd be like that is our goal for from now until ever is to try to find a way to remotely <laughs> release poisonous gas into the ICBM facilities that's amazing that makes that would make our our defense budget so much cheaper we could actually start to afford uh, you know uh, washing machines and uh, and whatever else the the ambassador mentions in Doctor Strange Love like the peace race would be much cheaper for them. But in the end, we could not keep up with the expense involved in the arms race, the space race, and the peace race. And at the same time, our people grumbled for more nylons and washing machines. <laughs> yeah. Now, there were two technically ridiculous things. What That was one, that there would be a canister of sarin gas inside the equipment panel that had to be, that was there to prevent somebody from doing what they're doing, taking over the launch control center. I mean, that just, again, these are massive complexes underground. 
they're designed to be jostled by a nuclear blast. The last <laughs> thing you want to do is have something in there that could accidentally go off and asphyxiate your crew, whose design is you know you're depending on to to man your your deterrent. The other thing that's ridiculous, and we didn't spend a lot of time on it, is Mackenzie, General Mackenzie, the commander sack on his own initiates yeah. this Operation Solid Gold to take out Dell and his team by dropping a miniature nuclear bomb into the silo via helicopter, bypassing the security cameras that are rotating around on top and then placing it right next to the, to next to the blast door and then detonating it. And the idea being that it'll, as, as one of the characters said, it'll turn them into jelly. Okay, so, all right, if you wanna prevent an, a terrorist launch, because that's effectively what this is, all right. Stevens isn't, President Stevens isn't convinced he asks about the radioactivity and the other members of the cabinet are saying when they're like, oh, it, it'd be minor, acceptable. And he's like, acceptable to whom? You know, what are we yeah, talking yeah. about? How, how far away? Oh, 60 feet away. It would be like, really? I mean, this is this is open basically to the atmosphere. How is that going to work? You know, and of course, the missiles, don't forget, are connected to the launch control center. Are they going to get vaporized too? Uh, what's going to happen to the warheads? You know, so that's that's problem number one. But the real problem is, and this was, I'm sure, only done to build tension, is that for some reason, the miniature nuclear device has two little bubble levels on it. And it has to be kept completely level as they bring it down from the helicopter and then down the elevator shaft and then in place it right at the blast door because otherwise, well, we don't know, but the assumption is it will go off. So if it has to be kept level, one presumes that there's something liquid in there that if it tilts the wrong way, it will go off. Nuclear bombs don't, I mean, they don't contain liquids, okay? This is not like the first... Hydrogen bomb, which was fueled by liquid deuterium, which was the size of a building. No, this is a little tiny thing that's the size of a briefcase. So, what is the what in the maybe, world? Maybe maybe Robert about? Aldrich he had some issues hanging pictures on his wall. So he's obsessed <laughs> with all these bubbles in the middle. I mean, it was weird. There's like two yeah. references to keeping bubbles. That whole scene where they bring the solid gold thing down. That for me was like ridiculous. It was so uh, it was long. like comic. It was like almost com- it, it was so long, but it was like comic. Like the the soldiers who are bringing it down are like talking to each other and like making like weird small talk like they're incompetent the whole thing just was very silly yeah it, it didn't it was <laughs> the movie's all about it's it's feng shui it's, it's balance everything came everything on the level and it also is so fascinating to me because i i know like these backpack you know smaller you know nuclear devices i don't they never called it a backpack bomb but you know it's, it's that's what it re- kind of reminds me of the sadm but like those were meant to be like you would put them on a backpack and jump out of an airplane right so, right right yeah like, yeah so they're 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 meant to be you know jostled a bit like I get there there are these uh, you know altimeters that are on a lot of these you know nuclear bombs that are that drop uh, you know gravity bombs that will detonate after a, at a certain altitude but this just seems to be so sensitive and also just don't arm it until you get there it did make a lot of sense but it, it created the tension I guess that they that they needed for this um, I mean John Ratzenberger did a great job yeah. pretending that it was like about to go off so but there were also uh, so many times where I saw the bubble move past the right. point where they said they couldn't do it well, and then well yeah then okay then after Ratzenberger who's coming down the elevator shaft to get some grease on his foot but yeah. only very conveniently right at the moment when they're about to arm it does he slip and accidentally hit the door and then the alarm goes off and Dell knows what's going on then they have to rush to get out and they're moving like twice as fast as they did. Mm-hmm. And they don't seem to. And at one point, one of the characters says, 
just go, go, go. It's like, Wait. it doesn't matter anymore. Like, and they- Leave the bomb too. I don't understand that. Like, oh, then now they'll have 10 nuclear bombs. Like, they have nine already. Just leave it. Right. Uh, whatever. There's, there's not a lot of there's not a lot of logic there at that point, and it does it does drag the movie out longer. But I guess if you didn't do that, and if it was just so that they would have yeah. just propelled down the shaft, set it up. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's it's somebody thought that was a clever idea, and it just doesn't pro- make a lot of sense. I mean, I get they were trying to build suspense, but the problem is it's like a third of the way into the movie, so like you know it's not going to work. So why are we spending 20 minutes on this? You know, like right. save that, save something like that for the end. But Tim Mays is a good point. So after, after Cliff Clavin accidentally touches the door and sets off the alarm and everybody knows that they're there and Dell says, basically, screw you, I'm going to launch these missiles. Mm-hmm. And they start going up to the surface. General McKenzie wants to go. They're basically, they've armed the thing. They're ready to go. The guys that had placed it are going to be toast along with everybody in the control center. And, the, and certainly the guys on the surface, because there was a whole team that came down too. And the president ultimately calls it off. And you mm-hmm. said, well, why did he do that? I mean, they were ready to go. It would have solved the problem. And again, the alternative to this is World War Three, because these missiles, they weren't, they never at any point changed the targeting. These are just, um, and this is a question I have for you, Stephen, is, you know, are these things, are these Titan missiles basically set to a target and you can't change it? Or... Can they change them with you know before they launch them? It seemed like basically they're they're set to target towards somewhere in Russia, and obviously if they get if they get launched, you can't recall them unless it's one of those right. movies where you can abort the launch, uh, but you don't recall these things. And now the the Soviet Union will respond. So that's the alternative. There is is the, basically the of a, a full scale nuclear exchange. Why not do that? Or honestly, at a certain point. Why not just fire one of your own nuclear weapons to destroy the facility? You can. I know you. These things are meant to withstand a nuclear attack but you could right. drop it right on top okay so they've taken over the silo um and, and they've got the three missiles there all right so at that point they've got this miniature bomb right up next to the launch control center that will reliably we're told turn everybody inside the jelly and stop whatever's happening and it might also take out the missiles too so again they call it off and it appears like stevens is concerned that there might be radioactive contamination you know, downwind and in Montana. Right. Fair point. Okay, there would definitely be some. Whether it's acceptable or not depends on what you think. But but honestly, I mean, nuclear missiles, particularly liquid-fueled nuclear missiles, are super vulnerable to bullets. <laughs> so you have you have these guys in the APCs out there and the troops and whatever else, when they first get there and when the doors open when he's trying to make his point and the missiles come up, and even and at any point in the movie, this could have been done. You could shoot at those things, okay? And the fuel would leak, and they would either explode before launch or at launch. Or you could fire one of the rounds from one of those tanks at yeah. them. Or you could drive uh, a vehicle or a tank into the silo and let it drop onto the missile, which would do the same thing. There was actually an incident in 1984 in, it was in Wyoming. A missile gave a Minuteman missile gave erroneous indications that it was about to launch, mm. and so as a as a safety measure, the Air Force tried to downplay this, and people were like, "Well, if you weren't concerned, why did you take this <laughs> step?" But as a safety measure, they drove an armored vehicle over the silo door and put it on the silo door. Now those doors, unlike the ones in the movie, which open up uh, uh, vertically and the missile comes up from underground, 
the Minuteman door slides horizontally across the ground rapidly. It's got explosive bolts and then the missile is launched very quickly. The idea being that just like if you have a tablecloth on a table and you yank the tablecloth out. So in this case, you would yank the silo door, the truck would fall on top of the missile and the missile would explode at launch or it would be <laughs> that it couldn't launch. So you could have done that too, or you could have taken all those helicopters and dropped something fairly heavy, a car, a tank, <laughs> something, whatever those helicopters can lift onto the silos. Okay, there's three that we can see. We only ever see three, although they reference nine constantly, which is correct, but you only see three. Mm -hmm. um, you could have launched, dropped something into all nine silos and stopped that from happening. But, but the other point here is, okay, so those missiles have to be fueled before they're launched. Those missiles are on alert all the time, but they're not fueled all the time. When Dell and his team took over, I'm assuming they were not fueled. Dell is not, he might be an expert in how the base works, but I don't think he's a, a warhead launch officer. I, there's no indication the missiles have actually been fueled. Mm -hmm. In the real world, they're probably not. So they're not going anywhere. But there were other ways to take that out, which they completely bypassed. Probably because they didn't know or for the sake of building suspense. Those are all great plans. I think you're all overthinking it because I think there's a great situation. No, <laughs> uh, no you're overthinking it. You're being too super critical on this one because you really could just use a socket wrench, uh, which is what happened in, in <laughs> Arkansas in 1980. Now, this was a Titan II missile, but a, a large, I'll give it to this, a large socket wrench fell over when people were working on kind of maintenance of the missile, kind of fell into the silo punctured the fuel tank, caused a massive explosion. Uh, you know, it's a sad, tragic story because it killed a, a U.S. Air Force officer and flung the, the nuclear warhead 300 feet away from the silo. Through the silo door, yeah. the nine ton or whatever it was, silo door, yeah. It was it was an incredibly hard, it was, you know, not Chernobyl level explosion, but it was like that for people that have seen, uh, you know, that show. You know, according to the, the explosive ordnance, you know, disposal tech, they said it was really close. That uh, The safety features, you know, prevented it from detonating, but it was as one of the closest you can kind of get on this. And that was just from a socket wrench that fell from a couple, you know, a couple feet from, from uh, you know, the where it was open and, you know, fell onto into the... Yeah, into the silo itself. So we just chuck one of those, and and you can. But again, get there. that happened in 1980, which is before the film was made. Uh, <laughs> yeah. well, I will say, I will say. I mean, that obviously, yeah, totally. I, I mean, you guys have like blown the whole thing to Swiss cheese. But <laughs> I, I thought the I thought the movie actually did a good job. I wasn't really focused on this yeah. while we were going through the scene, and you know, there's like like any good hostage movie where you know you could think about you know ways to end it you kind of don't focus on it. I mean, bad hostage movies, you're, you know, it gets ridiculous, but actually, I, I don't know, maybe it was the way that they kind of set up the dynamic with, you know, the silo versus the, the Oval Office and the split screen and the way it was done. I, I thought, you know, clearly it's ridiculous, but I at least wasn't focused on it. I think that is a credit to the way the movie was done. You suspended disbelief. Good for you. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> this yeah. is, but this is like, I could suspend my disbelief while watching Air Force One uh, while you had trouble you know, with the way that that particular plane was, you know, portrayed for us. I think watching this movie, it, it's really hard to not go, hmm, why don't they just shoot it or any of those kinds of stuff? But, I, you know, Gabe, you're you're not a completely, you know, uh, new person to this because you did as part of your, your road trip last year. Uh, you went to a Titan missile museum over in uh, what was it in South Dakota? Uh, not a, a Titan museum. I'm sorry, it was Minuteman too. Um, but you you went and saw some of those things. How did this uh, way it was portrayed in the film? You know, different systems and everything. If you want to see a Titan missile, you go to the museum uh, in Arizona where they have a real Titan II 
missile, that one that was actually shown in the movie Star Trek First Contact. Uh, what was this comparing, you know, now that you've you've seen the film and this museum in South Dakota? Yeah, no, that's a great point. That, that actually was something that was top of mind when I was watching this. So, yeah. During the summer, uh, I was on a road trip, cross-country road trip with my wife, and uh, we stopped by the Minuteman Missile National Historic Site in uh, South Dakota near Rapid City. And we were close uh, by, and and I saw, I didn't even know it was there, and I saw signs for it. I'm like, well, Tim, I'm going to get in a lot of trouble if I don't go here, so I'm going to go check it. And actually, it was very cool. Um, there were a number of silos. We actually drove back to see one of them. So, so Tim, you should take credit for motivating us. We didn't get to go inside the silo, but at least kind of the the shots from the outside, it was very interesting. You know, kind of the gate, the way it was set up was similar to what we saw there. Obviously, like the blast door, I remember seeing, um, you know, what Stephen described where it kind of slides open. And, and I think it was similar um, what they had in the movie. But no, I, you know, I would have loved to kind of get inside. And although we did get to go to the, there was a museum where they had some some artifacts and, and chairs and control centers. I, I got the sense also that the inside would have looked a lot different than what was in the movie. Um, it seemed like it'd be a lot more cramped and kind of, uh, it seemed like the movie had these sets for dramatic effect. But certainly the scene where they're kind of looking up at the rocket and they make the Star Trek reference that brought back some memories. Yeah, no, unfortunately that site has been closed because of because of COVID, but um, it hopefully will reopen up, you know, in the future when things when things improve. Yeah, it's it's definitely the the Minuteman uh, launch control capsules are a lot smaller than the one than what we saw, you know, in in the film. It's it's, it's basically the size of a of a van. I mean, it's what yeah. did I I put the dimensions in here somewhere? They're uh, twenty something feet by twelve feet. So it's really, and you've got equipment humming all the time and compressed air. I've been in a trainer at Hill Air Force Base in Utah. That one you can, it's, it's a ground level, but it is, it's very cozy. <laughs> I don't know that I'd want to spend 24 hours down there. It's just, you know, if you're claustrophobic, forget about it. Yeah, no, they got, as, as missiles miniaturized, so did the launch control complexes as two. And, they, and those, those tend to only have two people crews, right? I know this one was more of, like you mentioned earlier, the the Titan, at least at one point, had four involved. Yeah, no, Minuteman today's, all of our missiles today have two-person crews. And, and the other thing I think is interesting before we get into the, how would you end up taking over a launch facility like this? But one thing I, I found really interesting was that the people that were crewing the facility in the movie were definitely seemed like seasoned U.S. Air Force people. Like There were people who were, form, like, one of Dale's former, like, squad members during the Vietnam War was there. And it seemed like it was like a job. Well, you know, if you're in the U.S. Air Force for any period of time, you know, you're there for a while. We put the the best and the brightest. We put them into the launch facilities a little bit later on, which I don't know what it was like then. But I, I do know that these these days, it's usually people who are in these facilities are much younger. They're like in their early 20s. Some of them are still like at the academy. They're still doing, you know, tests and things. Because I know that I was reading stories of people were studying for tests while they were down there. Because they have lots of lots of free time uh, while they're down there when they're not running drills or other things like that. So I found that really interesting that um, that the people in the movie were much older. And there were people who were seemed like they had a lot more a part of their career already behind them. It was a prestigious job in the in the 50s mm. and 60s. Today, it's they're trying to make it more prestigious but i mean when the cold war ended it was this is like a sort of a backwater thing most people don't you know apply to be a missileer you get shunted into it and you're living you know in some like who wants to be in south dakota in winter you know i mean it's just and then and then you're away from your family 
I mean, they're they're underground for 24 hours, but I think they're they're uh, I think they've got like you know two or three day shifts or something. So it's a very demanding kind of job. And of course, you're sitting there doing nothing essentially. I mean, you're there's drills, there's constant drills and maintenance and whatever, but your whole job is not to do something, and and you're underground, isolated from everything. It's not glamorous at all. <laughs> so yeah, and you're you're waiting there, uh, hopefully to never get a call, and hopefully never to have anybody you know try to hostile take over it. Uh, so let's run through the scenario that we see here. Uh, what how what's it take to to do one of these takeovers of a launch facility, and then once you do. You know, what is the reality of it versus what is kind of shown in the movie, what you now can are capable of doing. So th- this scenario is actually codenamed in the military parlance as uh, empty quiver, which is when a nuclear weapon is lost, stolen or seized uh, with the potential that it could result in, you know, a nuclear combat or use, uh, which is different than broken arrow, which is more of a term that refers to some sort of incident or accident. What would not result in a nuclear war or or use because those terms are you know somewhat interchangeable, but also they have very very distinct meanings, and it's different than the movie Broken Arrow, which has caused a ton of confusion because the scenario in the movie Broken Arrow, which we've covered on the podcast, I believe is actually Empty Quiver and not Broken Arrow, since it could result in the use of one of these nuclear weapons. There's an example here that I was able to find in some research. Uh, it's in August in 2013. Uh, U.S. Air Force did an exercise at the 341st Missile Wing at Ed Malmstrom Base uh, in, Air- in Montana. And this is an exercise where a hostile team was able to take over uh, one of these launch facility silos. Particularly, I think it was at the silo itself. And they, the wing received a critical deficiency rating when the responding security team, team was not able to immediately regain control over the nuclear weapon. There was not a lot of details released by the Air Force uh, Global Strike Command, which was once known as Strategic Air Command. Not a lot of information other than that there was insufficient training for the security forces and that these complex scenarios that we could face, you know, they weren't necessarily ready for that. And the quote here is that we cannot divulge additional details of the scenario or the response tactics due to it being sensitive information that could not compromise security. But it was one of those situations, even in 2013, when um, this exercise showed that there at least they couldn't reclaim, I think, the missile spot where it was at. Because these are now where the launch facility itself is much further away, you know, sometimes miles away from the actual silos themselves. And the silos are fascinating these days, right? Are sometimes co-located uh, next to farmland or they're leased land from a private, you know, citizen. And these things don't have a lot of space around them um, in terms of there's not like multiple layers of fencing. Sometimes it's just one layer of fencing. You may have a, a couple you know, spots here and there where there's a building or two, but really these are usually no one's, Stephen Wright, no one's actually there at the silo there. There's lots of radar that detects anyone jumping over a fence. Alarms will go off, whether it's a person or like a rabbit, uh, but alarms will go off. Uh, there's lots of cameras, but everything is locked you know, the missile itself is underground. There's not a lot of ways to get to it very easily. There's lots of code passed back and forth about, I'm a, lo- I'm a crew officer. Here's the codes I need to be able to give you so that you don't, you know, when you when this radar goes off, you know it's me. There's lots of that, but it's really a fascinating look these days of, you know, how these things are separated and far away. In the movie, it's supposed to be described because as that's the way it was based back then, was all these things were really close to each other. If you were a force wanting to take over one of these missiles,
missiles, you have to make a decision these days. Do I take over the missile or do I take over the launch facility? Which one you would rather go to, Steve, is a question for you. Uh, but it depends on what your intention is. To steal a missile, it's kind of hard to do. You can't launch a missile from a silo. You have to go to these kind of control facilities, which in the movie, they're pretty much co-located next to each other. Right. Actually, and and the one of the bigger threats to setting off those multiple detectors at the silo enclosures. I think they're pretty much like one acre plots of land. Mm-hmm. Um, ground squirrels, they've had terrible yeah. problems with ground squirrels in the past. So, and the security teams, you know, rush out there by truck or helicopter, depending on how far away the silo is from the base. Cause some of them are like 50 miles away from the base. So it's a long, I mean, talk about other hardships for the crew. You've got to get up and take a long drive. Granted it's on a country road, but if it's in the middle of winter, it can be kind of unpleasant and go all the way out there to sit underground and then go all the way back to the base. Today, our silos are uh, the, what they're called. The, those are the um, the launch facilities and then the place where the crew is. And again, the crew controls 10 missiles and then five groups of 10 missiles is, is, a, is a squadron. Those are called missile alert facilities. So the, the silos themselves are highly secure. They're surrounded you know, by fences and barbed wire and all those um, detectors. If you get through the fence... You can and you can try to open up the portal to get into the silo itself, but inside that portal is a separate door with a combination lock called the B plug, hmm. and that has a separate code and a timer on it. And even if you know that code, like there's people that go out and maintain these things all the time, it takes 30 minutes after you enter the code hmm. for the plug to move out of the way for you to get into the silo itself. The idea being that if you're there unauthorized the security people will have enough time to come out and kill you because they have orders to shoot on site. So it's not an easy thing to do um, at all. And as far as the missile uh, alert facilities, those basically look like ranch houses. I mean, Gabe did his his driving vacation in 2001. My family surprised my father for his 70th birthday by taking him to um, Grand Teton National Park. And so we drove from Chicago out west and I figured as long as we're out the way, because I'm the geek that I am, <laughs> uh, I got a book from the um, Plowshares Group in Wisconsin, a book called Nuclear Heartlands, which at the time was the only book available that would give you maps of where these silos were. You could, by the way, you can order those. I have a copy of that. You can order them. They're free. I made a donation because it was so it was helpful for it. But Gabe likes a joke when I have this book and I'll bring it to his house because we'll do a podcast episode on it. And he's like, no, only you would have maps like this. So now I'm glad. <laughs> Thank you, Stephen, for... Uh, for also having that. Yeah, this was produced for the first time in the 1980s. Now you can go on Google Earth and find it and you can be driving in your car and check your, you know, Maps app and find it. But um, so we would stop and we had directions, you know, and they're basically off of country roads and they've got like little driveways that go right up to them and you can walk up to them. And one, there was a, a maintenance team that was there and they asked me what I was doing. And this was August 2001. Okay, so I don't recommend this now. So this is a month before it hit the fan. But I said, oh, I'm with the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists. I'm the executive director, you know, the folks with the Doomsday Clock. I'm just really curious. You know, I I study this stuff. I'm a taxpayer. And they said, well, um, just be careful and don't touch the fence and don't stay too long because we have got some other people coming out and they'll arrest you if they see you here. So I wandered around and took some pictures and we left. But we did that like four or five times. But the missile alert facilities look like basically ranch houses Mm -hmm. and they're dotted. And those are also on these maps. And those are very secure as well with barbed wire and fencing and everything and satellite dishes and the whole nine yards. The actual capsule where the crew sits is deep underground. So you can't 
easily get to that. And it's, it's, you'd have to penetrate the outer security barrier. You'd have to get into the building, kill the guards that are there, somehow get into the elevator, go down, and then you'd have to trick the crew into letting you in. So it's, it's, I don't know, it's never happened. Uh, I suppose, you know, there could be an insider threat. And there are times when people have sort of bypassed security because, hey, you know, it takes time and it's frustrating. So there's a team down painting the hallway or whatever. So you leave the door open and when you shouldn't, but it'd still be very, very difficult to do. Yeah, there was one incident um, uh, at the 341st as well, where I think where one crew member arrived well, one other one was was sleep. I think a mains person arrived when one person was sleeping, and the door wasn't closed, so it was left open, and and that became a, a whole uh, you know big uh, controversy. But yeah, it's it. There's a lot of downtime and down there. Uh, I think you mentioned you know how deep it is. I think it's like sixty five feet below for the Minuteman missiles. They do have access. It's, it's always fascinating to read this. You know, access to the internet. Uh, they've got lots of DVDs. They actually have access to direct TV because it used to be there was a rule, and we'll get into this in a second here, the implications of this rule. But it used to be a rule that no sleeping was allowed during these these shifts. Like you had to have two people awake at the whole time. And then once they ultimately let up on that a little bit, it allowed some one person to sleep while another person was was awake. We have to figure out what to do about that when. What if one person who's uh, sleeping is fine? They're a normal, per- normally perfect fine person. You you know uh, are loyal to the United States, but the other person now has access to everything by themselves. So you have to try to find a way to maybe stop one person from launching when normally in the past you'd have at least two people you know be awake at the same time. But there is a lot of passing back and forth of encrypted codes in the movie. I think what happens is that they they beat up someone in advance. Of, of before they even do their like trick on the road where they get access to the rest of the crew, but they beat someone up and get that day's code from that individual, and that's how they're able to go around and get into the facilities and things. But these are in real life are supplied by the the national national security agency NSA. They're pretty serious. I guess if you miss up at any point when you give these codes out, they're gonna come in and they're gonna stop everything. So they're they're really were serious. The movie was had a bit of a tension moment there where someone was trying to trick someone else. I think by providing an additional level of a code. Put Captain Kincaid on the box for challenge. Right away, sir. Captain Roger F. Kincaid. Captain Kincaid, what is the password, please? Romeo. Second word. And. Third word? There is no third word. Repeat. Third word, please. There's, uh... There's no third word, sir. I challenge you. Well? I challenge you. You are correct, Captain. No third word. Permission to come down. Um, I actually like that part of the the movie. There's quite a bit of that there. Um, anything else you know about about these different codes that get passed back and forth? I know you don't know the code itself, but how was the movie portraying that? I mean, I don't know the exact particulars. This was also portrayed in in war games mm-hmm. and, and other movies. So I, that that's generally correct. I mean, the the fact that Dell and his team who looked pretty motley, honestly. I mean, at one point before they get to the silo, Burt Young is wearing. <laughs> Basically, the kind of hat he wore in Rocky. He does not look like an Air Force officer at all. And that they could drive up to this complex and they would recite their social security numbers and the codes and everything. And the guards would let them in. Yeah, the most the most secure code possible is someone's social security code. I mean, that, that they wouldn't have pictures of these guys. I mean, also remember, Lawrence Dell is a convicted murderer. Uh, and, a, and a well-regarded general who was, by the way, promoted to general to try to shut him up, but it didn't work right. as they say in the film. 
So he's a pretty well-known character and he was convicted of a murder in Montana. So the fact that right. Air Force officers wouldn't recognize his face just seems beyond belief, but we'll just, we'll just go with it. But maybe, maybe this crew that was on the road that was basically ambushed was a completely new crew to these people. And, you know, they were, they were starting there for the first time, but it just doesn't seem, I mean, there's a level of security that you wouldn't want to have pictures and they wouldn't have to flash ID cards or something like that just doesn't make a lot of sense. But again, if they had to do that, they never would have gotten inside and there'd be no movie. So Gabe, did you enjoy the the passing back and forth between the codes from a, from a simply a a non-nuclear movies perspective, not whether or not it was accurate, but like, was that an enjoyable, uh, you know, action thriller scenario? Kind of. I mean, it, it felt a little, uh, it's certainly like part of this movie was playing with like the sympathy, I feel like for, you know, the, the guys who are trying to do this and the fact that they're hijacking a nuclear weapon. And I, I think it starts like building some sympathy where Dell, you know, shoots the one guy who's the loose cannon and seems to be for some altruistic means. And then they're like going to torture this guy. And it's just kind of like, I don't know, it didn't, that didn't work for me. You know, I, not knowing anything about these codes and how they work, it seemed, I guess, kind of plausible that this is something that would be done. But I think some more filler. It was quite a long movie, and I could have probably done without mm. this. It's, for me, this wasn't the more interesting stuff. Really starts with the second act and talking about game of cat and mouse between the mm. two. Speaking of really bad security, so because you just mentioned it at one point, you know, they they wanted to get, uh, they needed to break into the safe to get the launch keys, but Dell shoots this guy who was the safe cracker that they'd rec- he'd recruited in prison because it turns out he's a homicidal maniac. <laughs> so, I mean, Dell is just, I'm, I'm getting off track here for a second, but Dell is just not a great judge of character. He picked a homicidal maniac to be right. on his team yeah. Yeah. and then has to eliminate him. He picked Powell, who turns out lied through his teeth because he simply wanted to escape from death row on pr- in prison. I mean, he may have all these grandiose dreams about how U.S. foreign policy and wars should be conducted, but as a judge of character, I've got to say, I find him really lacking. But It's not the A-team, it's like the C-team. Right, but at one point, General McKenzie says, I think talking about the president, you know, sir, these people in the, in the silo three, they're our best people, you know, mm-hmm. getting to your point about they're older in season. Okay, but one of those best people at the mere suggestion that his colleague is about to get a screwdriver poked into his eye, gives up the fact that the codes to the safe are in, uh, basically on a sticky label <laughs> attached to his dog tags around uh, his neck. I mean, hello, terrible, terrible operational security. <laughs> but I wonder if that's, we'll get, we'll have a few thoughts on that in a little bit here, but I wonder if that's just like, well, yeah, that, that makes sense. People put their passwords uh, in places like that. I'm just surprised it wasn't someone's like birthday. Well, let's let's get into that. So, when you are able to get into this particular facility, you know now you have access to the, the launch panel. In the movie, all you had to do was slightly torture someone, get access to a safe, and in that safe you have the keys and the codes that you need to launch. So, in the scenario of this movie, at any point, these launch you know officers that are down there can decide I'm going to launch today, and they can you know access the key there's nothing anyone remotely i guess could do except for uh releasing the sarin gas i suppose that's the 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 safety extra extra safety measure that they have there remotely um but in, you know in, in real life let's let's talk a little bit about like what you actually have to do because 
the first usual step in, in terms of, you know, authorizing an attack is that when the president makes the order to launch, the president has, you know, as Stephen knows uh, very well, the nuclear football, the, 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 the emergency satchel, that there's a code that the president carries, that, but that all that does is auth- authenticates that the president is who, you know, they say they are, and that then they give the, the order. That order then goes to the National Command Authority, and then they issue... Uh, which I also think are NSA codes, but I know, I know the NSA does the biscuit codes that the president has, but then there's an additional level of authentication codes that are these days, you know, given out that actually, or authorization codes that actually now allow the missiles to to be launched here. It's a, a, my understanding that it was a, it's a 36 letter code, or at least it was, uh, you, know, you know, back in the Cold War, that would then allow the missile to be fired. Uh, and they would also, the people who were the missileers, you know, targeting or launching the missile, they can also put in, you know, the target plan and, and all of that. What else do, or do we, should people know about this, Stephen, in terms of the, what a missileer is allowed to do versus kind of what's shown in the movie? Well, they're not supposed to be able to launch things <laughs> on their own. I will say that when the first Minuteman missiles were brought online during the Cuban Missile Crisis in Montana, the crews effectively hotwired them to allow them to launch without having to go through all the mm. security that would normally be in place later because they were they were trying to get these things ready to go. So there there was the possibility there that they could have been launched independent of some presidential order, verified order, and so forth. Wait, um, serious? That, that, that's seriously that's terrifying. That seriously <laughs> happened. That seriously <laughs> happened. Yeah. Oh yeah, my god. Yeah. Only at a few, but still, okay. you know. <laughs> one one is too many. That 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 is disconcerting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that was that was. I mean, there were other bad things that happened during the Cuban Missile Crisis, but yeah, that that's bad. So you know, they're not supposed to. So they've got the keys, and they've got um, they've obviously got control of the missiles. We'll leave apart the fact that they haven't fueled them. Um, <laughs> but you you had asked earlier about the targets, and um, uh, at one point, I think. Mackenzie tells people assemble in the Oval. I think the president asks, where are these right. things supposed to go? And then Mackenzie says, sir, that's only known by yourself, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and the National Security Council, which is, I mean, that's just ludicrous. I mean, the president doesn't know what individual <laughs> target. He could ask, but he doesn't know. And neither does the NSC, nor does really the Joint Chiefs of Staff. It's, it's, then it would be Strategic Air Command. Now it would be U.S. Strategic Command and maybe a handful of people in the Pentagon involved in, in the targeting of these things knows where they're going, but the president wouldn't have any idea. I mean, he was right in right. supposing that Russia was, you know, was likely the target. And later on, they're sort of reviewing the targets for the nine missiles. If somebody breaks into the silo and they get a hold of it, they shouldn't be able to do anything. But there were a lot of corners cut right. in the early years. And as you as you maybe you want to make that point about Bruce's point about what the what the what the codes were. But uh, basically, the the Air Force and the Navy, which also didn't have permissive action links at all for many years, but the Air Force didn't take kindly to having any kind of inhibitor. They wanted to go when they wanted to go, <laughs> and so they found a way around that system. So, I, I, you know, a lot of this is it's hard to tell. You know, wh- what it was like, you know, then in the movie time period versus today. But you know, my understanding is that there is actually a safe that you need access to you know to be able to get in there usually there are two locks so each missileer has you know some portion of the compilation lock but that's usually to get access to a code book that then they receive a code from you know from the national command authority and then that is used to decode 
a another you know actual code that you plug into you know into the computer so there is access to that but it's, again you you have like hundreds of codes you don't know which one is the one that you actually need to be able to use i think the the really fascinating thing about this is as you as you mentioned is that uh when president kennedy and i think it was a kennedy johnson administration request you know from the president so pretty pretty big pretty big deal you know they wanted there to be additional levels of security so that one person like the scenario of this movie couldn't actually use the ICBMs. So they requested that there be code locks put onto the missiles that then this process we talked about earlier is actually in place. But according to, to former, you know, ICBM missileer in, in a person who, you know, just recently passed away. So it was very sad to read about that. But, you know, he was a big you know figure in the field. Did you work with Bruce very much? I did at, at Brookings and later. Yeah. Yeah. He was terrific. I mean, he's literally the, one of the first things I ever read on this was his book on um, you know the logic of accidental nuclear war. He claimed in, in 2004 that the U.S. Air Force from 1962 to 1977, the way they got around these requests to have these code locks was, yeah, no problem. We'll have a code lock on here, but it's just a series of eight zeros. There was no requirement that the codes combination had to be complex, uh, much like if you just put password as your password. It's technically a password, uh, but it's not one that you can doesn't serve the purpose. It just happens to be, you know, an additional level of check here. And, and the thought there was, you know, we want this to be something that is done quickly. It's more important that we get these birds in the air than it is to prevent an accidental or unauthorized launch. Pentagon in 2014 firmly denies this is ever the case. Uh, Bruce Blair has come back and has talked about, you know, he described training manuals that were used during this time period and that described the process and about how there is a code, but you're not supposed to change the code and, and all of this. So there is this debate here uh, back and forth. I don't know. It's hard to decide whether or not this is, is real or not, but it seems like it's certainly a very scary idea that this might actually be the case. So, I mean, Stephen, do you think if this was true, does this basically now mean that anyone could have launched at any point from... 62 to 77 and the key thing about this is we talked earlier about how the there was once a point where you always had to have some two people of the crew awake at all times well once you had to have what allowed the crew members to you know shift back and forth take turns sleeping this was a system that they put into place that actually now meant that there was more of a code so there was once they in 77 started to have this these changes there was actually a box that was put on and there was a procedure you know with actual codes and things but the 62 to 77 period right around the time period when at least the the movie came out so not in 1981 when it's supposed to take place but i don't know very scary time period there what do you think about all this well you have the two-person rule and they reference that without explicitly saying it in the film where both pal and dell have to turn the keys simultaneously within a certain period of time so within that individual launch control center two people have to work in concert mm -hmm. to achieve that goal but at the same time, and again, I don't know how it worked with Titan One, but I presume it would be similar for what we've got with Miniman today. You would have at least one of the launch control center that would have to approve that launch. The idea being that you, well, you know, if anybody decided to go rogue, the other guys could could veto it. Mm -hmm. So again, if it's a legitimate order coming down from the president, everybody gets the order. It's authenticated. And they open up their safes and they get their keys and they they enter the target package. And if everybody agrees, it goes. But if, in, you know, in the case of our uh, missiles today, if two of the launch controls, so four people have to work together. If, if others say they don't turn their keys, like war games, or they decide, you know, they're just not going to do it, it doesn't matter. They can't veto it. You know, if at least one other launch control capsule doesn't do it, it doesn't go. And I would presume that would be the case here. But again, that would be the end of the movie. Right. Mackenzie would call the president and say, sir, we've got this situation, but 
don't worry, our other crews are loyal and you know we'll we'll flush <laughs> these people out. Frankly, the end. Dell should know that because he designed the f- <laughs> that's what we're told. But again, there wouldn't be a movie, you know. Yeah. So. <laughs> Gabe, uh, what how, what did you think about this whole like? Did, did you seem like if you're like, oh, if I took notes and if I was able to send, you know, if I got a crew together, uh, I got the right the right group of people, and they said and they all turned to each other and said, I'm in. Would you think you based on the the, the movie scenario with the blueprints here? Could you handle this? Could you get get this going? I like the uh, Rick and Morty reference there. Uh, no, I, um, I I don't know, Steve. Maybe like because Dell's like crazy. Maybe he like selectively remembers certain things about about it, which is also kind of terrifying. Um, the whole the whole thing. I mean, th- this was a this was a part of the movie that did feel ridiculous. Was just the, the quality of the crew and like especially like that. Okay, w- the the sarin gas bubble thing. We you know as a plot device, it's ridiculous enough. But just like everyone's reactions to it, like it's just like <laughs> it's just buffoonery. And I guess, you know, when you're in military prison, you're working with what you got. But Dell seems to be the only driving force behind the ideological right. thing here. So oh, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I just don't it, that just did not come together for me. I think you just kind of have to park that away as, as ridiculous. But that that was a little bit problematic for me. And, and the fact that nobody really seemed to know kind of what was going on as i said in this movie for whatever reason i was able to i'm not usually not so able to do that but they they must have done a good job focusing but i think that's why i enjoyed the the second and third acts more because it kind of gets away from that the first act where they're doing all this stuff it's just a little bit ridiculous well and there's a lot of split screen activity by this point in the film so you're focusing on you know the white house and you're focusing on mckenzie and you're focusing on in the launch control center and then there's the the snipers of a grand or whatever it is. So there's a lot to deal with and you're listening at the same time. And I think it's an effective use of split screen, yeah. which can be, which can be gimmicky, but it allows you to sort of slide past a lot of this. Gee, wait a minute. What does this, I mean, but it's true. Con, Dell basically conned his team with the promise of a big payday. He knew what he wanted to do. You know, he didn't let them in on the big picture of it. And then of course, when Pal found out about it, he was pissed off at first and then he came around to it partly because I think he realized being the rational human being, you know, grounded in reality that he is, that we're all going to die here. So maybe we won't die. Maybe we'll be able to get this money. But, you know, let's just at least give it give it a try here. And, you know, poor Augie didn't get a chance because he got in the midst of we, we forgot to mention. So in the, you know, as, as crazy that as that sequence was. So the guys are bringing the bomb with the bubble level down and, oh, no, it might go off if we don't get it right. And Dell's threatening to launch, and Mackenzie's furious that the president's going to maybe call this off. And everybody in the Oval Office is like, "Oh my God, what's going to happen?" At that moment in time, the two missile launch officers, one of which again is Dell's buddy from Vietnam, who spent five years in a POW camp with him, they they burst out of their locked room and start fighting <laughs> with everybody and gun down poor Augie. And Dell shoots that guy. And then Pal, I think, knocks out the other officer. So it's just, it's like total, total mayhem. It, it's a lot like if anybody remembers the, the opening scenes of The Dark Knight, when the, the Joker assembles a crew to, of people to take over a bank, and he tells all of them that 
maybe hints that the people's shares could be larger if they start, like, once they are no longer necessary for the mission, they can kill their colleague and get a larger <laughs> share. It kind of seemed like that a little bit to this movie, like it started to build and build, so there are only two people left uh, at the end here. But, you know, moving in from away from the nuclear discussion into more of the kind of non-nuclear plot discussion stuff, which we normally call the parking lot uh, movie discussion, we would chat about the movie after seeing it in the theater. Uh, the director said he hoped that the theater goers would think that General Dale was kind of game started to allude to was 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 crazy they wanted he wanted people to think that this guy has something wrong you know mentally with him he thinks says the quote is uh but i don't think we did it the audience is so much for those guys getting away with it and he also thought it was not ambiguous enough at the end of the movie whether or not he thought the shooting of the president was was intentional or not well what do you all think about this you know does dale come across as you know quote-unquote crazy or does he seem like a rational person who has a plan here and has had it all thought through because my thought is he definitely knows what he's doing he knows that he lied to his crew members i kept thinking that there was going to be more inter-fighting between the crew members once they realized like oh this is not about the money. This is completely just about to get this thing released, and there's really no end game. Like, there really never was a plan for them to get from the silo back to Air Force One. Like, they never had thought through any of that stuff. So it really was clear to me, it, it, was, it was clear to me that he had a plan. He wanted the president to release the memo, and then for basically to be arrested uh, or or killed leaving the silo. It seemed to be his plan. But what do you all think about that? He seems pretty cool and calculating and rational at the beginning. The part where, as Gabe said, he seems like he's gone off the deep end is where he threatens to launch right. uh, the missiles after the failed attack and Powell refuses to go along with him. And at that point, is like, well, okay, you were using nuclear weapons to make a threat. That's what the United States government uses them for. So it's understandable but really, you're going to blow up some significant portion of the world and probably ignite a thermonuclear war. In the book, apparently, at, at, at the time that this takeover is happening, Russia is making moves on West Berlin. So there's there's some you know additional tension there that we're not aware of in the film. Um, but certainly, Russia wouldn't take too kindly to seeing nine ICBMs flying from Montana over the pole at any time. So at that point, he seems like he's kind of lost it. Um, I mean, he's he's... He's an idealist. He's got, like I said, he's got this quaint idea that that this particular president is the guy who's going to save the country by revealing the grand truth about how the military and the government works. But it does kind of break down. And, um, you know, why why didn't they invite the press to the to Silo 3 and have a press conference Right there. I mean, those high, those high school kids in the Manhattan Project movie we covered, they, they figured out that plan. Right. You know, Paul Stevens, David Stevens, president, and maybe they're related. I don't know. But, uh, you know, it doesn't seem like they've really kind of figured that out. I mean, in fact, they haven't figured that out. I I guess he and and of course, the original plan was to have the president do this or else the missiles would launch. The president says, I'm not going to do this under duress. And his secret cabinet colleagues there say, well, some of them, they're kind of, they're splitting. It's like, well, we could do this, but not this way. And others are like, no, we absolutely couldn't do this. And the president becomes an idealist and says, no, we should do this, but I can't do it like this. So I will go out there and then we'll, you know, we'll try to figure it out. But he's, even he thinks he's going to die. So, because, you know, the government is what it is. And to your point also, I mean, Richard Woodmark seems to be sitting in the catbird seat here 
as the commander of SAC, he's also sitting in a command trailer monitoring this whole thing. He is the one that orders the snipers to take out Dell and Powell. And he's the one who tells them specifically twice, I don't care if they've got a clear line of sight and the president is in danger. You are to shoot them. And after the president, after Dell and Powell go down and the president goes down, you see Mackenzie's hand go to a video monitor and turn it off. He doesn't leave the command trailer. He does oh my God, you know, the president got shot. It seems to be pretty clear that this is what he was expecting. Maybe it was even what he was wanting, which is right. even more evil than what we thought and then what Dell probably thought McKenzie was all about. Um, so, no, I mean, I, he, clearly Dell didn't think this through all the way. Uh, I think he had good, I think his motives were good for him, but he didn't sort of anticipate every possible uh, outcome, unfortunately for him. And, and obviously the implication is that he went to his grave, you know, with the secret the president did and none of this will ever be revealed. <laughs> which yeah. is very 1970s. Yeah. In McKinsey's defense, he he did have a lot to drink that day, so I think they, <laughs> that's true. Yeah. Everyone's like drinking in this movie as they're like going to uh, defuse World War III, which I thought was very interesting. That's probably why they're so calm. They're sitting around, and Dell's threatening to start World War III. And they're like, oh yeah, let's just have some. <laughs> There's also some nice product placement. I think like the the Jim Beam uh, label is clearly visible, and I think on air on the flight out to Montana, the president's <laughs> like, I'll have another Jack Daniels, please. Like when you're about to be captured and kidnapped and potentially shot, Jack Daniels, the drink for you. May I bring you gentlemen a beverage? Hey, you're just the man I've been looking for. I'll have another Jack Daniels, Mr. Willard. Yes, Mr. President. Yeah. By the way, and by the way, speaking of that scene, so the president is sitting at a desk in Air Force One that's built into the plane, but the Secretary of Defense, I believe, it's somebody sitting there talking with them, and it's basically like in this kind of chair, it's sitting in a rolling desk chair. <laughs> yeah. On Air Force One. Okay. I mean, I'm not an air airplane expert, but that doesn't seem to be quite right. <laughs> not not aviation great. Yeah, not properly certified. I would say. Somebody <laughs> snuck that on board. So the president decides or is coerced or whatever to go to Montana. There's when he gets when he arrives there, there's two guys in trench coats. So I guess we're supposed to be Secret Service. <laughs> we sort of get out, look around, and then sort of disappear. Nobody accompanies the president. Why wasn't the president wearing a bulletproof vest? His friend, his supposed friend, the Secretary of Defense, says in the Oval Office before they even hatch this idea that, you know, well, protective measures would be happen to have to be taken. Well, what protective measures were taken? The guy was right. shot yeah. and killed. Yeah. They couldn't have put a bulletproof vest. They couldn't have put a helmet on They him. should have put him in that, and then they would have, like, taken it off of him and shown, like, you know what I mean? Like, they could have, the uh, Dell and uh, Powell could have, like, saw that, removed it, and then made it clear to the people when they were leaving the silo, like, they could have had half his shirt off and shown, like, look, now you thought you'd be able to protect the president, the president's unprotected, but they still go away, you know, with doing with the plan. There could have been a way to put that in there, but you're right, it's silly otherwise. Maybe they, maybe they were setting up a post credit scene where the president walks into the Secretary of Defense's office and, like, reveals that he actually wasn't killed and he was wearing the bulletproof vest. He's like, you bastard, you didn't release the statement. You're it was fired. Porkins the whole time. <laughs> yeah, right, or, exactly. No, the president's body double walks yeah. in, fires the secretary of defense, yeah. and takes over the government like Dave. <laughs> there you go. I love this. This could be a whole franchise. And that'll that'll finally conclude the Star-Spangled Banner uh, trilogy. 
<laughs> I love it. Uh, so let, let's uh, let's wrap up here. We'll do our rating system. We always like to rate the movie, you know, out of five, with one being the worst and five being terrific. Um, but I like to tailor the rating system since we're going to get super critical about the plot. I like to get, you know, the same way about the rating system. So I've uh, I've, I've talked to the computer. Uh, I've, I've removed the failsafe stuff and then used the computer to a different purpose and I've uh, crunched the numbers here. And here's what I got. Let's rate Twilight's Last Gleaming. On a scale of one out of five booby traps on your ICBM launch equipment. If you've got just one or two of these things, even Polly from the Rocky movies can eventually figure it out. But if you've got five booby traps set up, then you probably got yourself a bit more of a secure failsafe. I'll go real quick here. I, I give this movie a three. It starts strong, uh, but I think it peters out at the end, which is I think is very going to be different than what you all, at least at least with Gabe, thinks. I enjoyed the start, the start at the beginning. I think the Oval Office discussions, maybe because of just the time period, now, you know, looking at these debates, I think the performances were good, but then it starts to get a little bit muddled, and I didn't like the third act. Um, I do like the idea, the fact the Secretary of Defense refused to say anything, and it was just kind of a gut punch ending. Uh, I like that, but it just didn't do enough for me, and I think there's too many parts of this movie uh, that could have been, you know, edited down, maybe the whole 20, 30 minutes of the film. It's a good movie. I think it's 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 worth watching. It's easy to get access to. Uh, so I certainly enjoyed it. I give the Silo 3 movie the, the three-star uh, rating treatment here. Uh, let's start with Gabe. Gabe, what do you think? I'm actually going to go four stars <laughs> for Movie Trap. Um, but that's, caveat, that's based on uh, if you turn on the movie, maybe like 45 minutes in. I think once, <laughs> after after that whole like botched, um, you know, mini nuke that they're trying to put in the silo, from then on, it gets four stars for me if you just skip that part. The whole thing could have been deleted. This movie would have been a little bit yeah. faster. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, if you add in the, the first act, I'd probably go three or 3.5. But no, I, I actually, I enjoyed this a lot more than I thought I would uh, based on the first, you know, 30 minutes or so. I thought I was just going to hate it and it, it kind of just got better. Yes, there's a lot of kind of silly things that you have to put aside. I, I, I thought the split screen worked well. It almost reminded me of like early, like 24. I was waiting for Jack Bauer to jump out maybe <laughs> during the torture scene. Um, there's some cringe stuff in there and, and obviously, you know, some silliness, but I thought the, the point that the movie was making just about, um, you know, the role of nuclear weapons and, you know, what our government is all about. And I, I enjoyed that play at the end with, you know, the president wanting to, uh, you know, wanting to act benevolently, but there's this broader system in place that we have that, you know, would prevent something like that from happening. I, I, I enjoyed that point. Uh, that was very thought-provoking for me. So, yeah, uh, again, skip the first 45 minutes or so and and uh, jump into it there. That would be my recommendation. What about you, Stephen? The whole movie, not just the, the first part or the end. Uh, what would you? How many booby traps would you give this? I saw this for the first time as a kid on TV. I don't remember my reaction. I wouldn't say that I was enthralled, but it clearly parts of it stuck with me in my head. And the second time I saw it, I was also very impressed. The more I've watched it hmm. to prepare for this, the more I start picking it apart. It hasn't ruined it for me at all, but I, I'm getting different feelings. So I'm going to go with my original feeling and I'm going to give it a four. I like, I think the concept is good. The actors are fun to watch. I'm trying to watch them in the context of 1977. Uh, I think that's very important yeah. to, because it is a conspiracy thriller. Although I was relatively young at that point in time, and there's a lot of other films of that genre you know, three days of the condor, other things like that. And it's, it's just, um, you have to watch it with, with, with that, um, 
with that kind of mindset and timing in mind. But I think I, I think they did a great job on the miniatures. All the shots of the um, the missiles coming up out of the silos were all done in miniature. I, I had no idea until you referenced that. That's so interesting. It completely matched the live action that was shot in Bavaria. The acting I thought was was good. It was it was great to see Burt Lancaster in a different <laughs> nuclear role here, and of course uh, Paul Winfield and really Richard Woodmark. Everybody, I, more women would have been great. Somewhat shorter would have been good, but it was Aldrich's last big hurrah as a filmmaker. Uh, he had other things in mind, but he got sick and died in 1983. It's a worthy film in the genre, and you know, not the best by any means, but definitely worth seeing. Well. We got some other stuff to recommend people uh, to check out, including some movies within the genre. Uh, so I'll go real quick here. Uh, I recommend another great movie by Robert Aldrich, uh, Kiss Me Deadly, which from 1955. So a lot a lot older than this movie, but it has some strong atomic bomb themes, including the kind of final plot device here. I'm not going to give it away, but it's a, a bit of a stand-in for, you know, for, for the bomb. And I think it also really delves into Cold War paranoia uh, pretty well. Uh, a movie that I, I remember seeing a long time ago, and I'm, I'm going to have to revisit, uh, but it's called The Parallax View uh, from 1974 uh, with Warren Beatty. Um, I liked it because of it had a lot of political you know, intrigue in it. The, a presidential candidate is assassinated, and a, and a reporter kind of has to track down the story about how this mysterious corporation might have been behind it. Uh, it's a great movie. It's a good representation of this 1970s political thriller conspiracy stuff. Um, and I also recommend a book that someone gave me in high school. It was the first book I ever read on the Vietnam War uh, by David Hubblestram, uh, The Best and the Brightest. So this is a a journalist and his take on the origins of the Vietnam War and about how even though you know President Kennedy and Johnson's there, people that they brought in were these academics from Harvard, these brilliant individuals who were meant to revitalize the State Department, revitalize, you know, create the National Security Council's infrastructure and debate these policies and things, but how ultimately they, you know, brought some ideas that and, and over you know overruled a lot of the career State Department staff and their warnings about foreign policy policy and about how we can sh- we can drift into this commitment to Vietnam War how how that kind of ended up happening, how the best of the brightest still resulted uh, in, into the situation that we ended up having there. Uh, I really do recommend people check that book out. It's very long, but it's a good reference. Uh, Stephen, do you have some stuff you'd like to recommend to people? So my recommendations, I've got two. Uh, one is sort of a mini series and one is a film, and they're both British, as it turns out. Um, the first is Defense of the Realm from 1985, which stars uh, Denholm Elliott. And it basically concerns a, an incident at a British, air, a NATO air base in Britain and a cover-up involving, I don't want to ruin the movie, but involving something near and dear to our hearts and, and, and a journalist trying to uncover it. It's a dark movie. It's a conspiracy movie. Hmm. It does involve nuclear weapons and it's very much of its time as well. And, and definitely worth worth seeing. Uh, the other is a miniseries that aired on Masterpiece Theater over here, and I guess on the BBC in the UK called A Very British Coup. Uh, that was in 1988. And it concerns a, a, a new prime minister, I think from the Labour Party there, who's very, very far left and decides to basically disarm the United Kingdom to get mm-hmm. rid of nuclear weapons. How he struggles with the powers that be there who definitely do not want the UK to get rid of its nuclear arsenal um, and um, also kind of dark. Uh, so, um, but definitely worth seeing. And it's, it's up, it's available on 
from some streaming services, and it may well be available on, on um, PBS Passport, their, their streaming platform uh, as well, but definitely worth checking out. And Excellent. Uh, so, so Gabe, you'll probably recommend uh, Star Wars 2 Wrath of Khan. <laughs> Star Trek. Can't compare Star Wars and Star Trek. I did it. Um, I just wanted to see if you'd catch it. <laughs> oh, no, you've crossed the streams. Oh, I, wanted no. see, I wanted to see if you'd catch it. Uh, all right, good. <laughs> uh, no, I would, um, you know, we mentioned earlier the visit to the uh, Minuteman Missile National Historic Site. Um, that that was very cool. If, if you can get there, um, you know, even as a as a person who's not really, uh, you know, that into this stuff, but, but it, it was very interesting. Um, but even if you can't get out there, if you go on their website, um, I think you can kind of Google it. It's the National Park Service website. They have some excellent um, virtual tours of the facility, including the command center and the, uh, the control center and the silo. And so you can kind of get a sense of what, obviously it's a different uh, different missile, but kind of gives you a sense of what the, it actually looked like. And that was the, it just looks a lot smaller and, and a lot more, um, tight than in the movie but it gives you a good sense to compare to um if you can't make it out to south dakota well thanks very much uh, both of you all for coming on here gabe you know welcome back i know we have uh, some other podcast ideas we'll be doing in a couple next couple of weeks and months but thanks for coming back on for this one absolutely no great to be back Tim. and steven thanks again man this is three times now uh appreciate every time you come on here you're uh, you're at atomic analyst on twitter anything else do you want people to know about your upcoming projects or work i'm still trying to save the world that's great <laughs> well the the atomic clock you mentioned earlier that's been did they change it or stayed the same it just recently was updated the the bulletin's doomsday clock is still where it was last year which is 100 seconds to midnight it hasn't moved i think they are where i don't have any responsibility for it anymore but i think that they're waiting to see what the biden administration does i mean the good news is obviously that new start was extended which should have happened during the trump administration but since the clock now takes into account things like climate change i mean obviously that's mm-hmm. moving in the wrong direction but uh, depending on how things go, you know, since they do this on an annual basis next year, maybe we can move a little bit further away from midnight. But obviously, you know, Biden's got to lick uh, COVID first and hopefully get us back into the JCPOA Iran and, you know, try to have some understanding with North Korea and hopefully not pursue all the crazy ideas and the $2 trillion nuclear modernization that is currently underway in the United States. So, um, there's, there's a lot that's still happening. Uh, well, thanks again, everybody. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Supercritical Podcast. If you have any suggestions for future episodes, or you want to tell us what we got wrong, either nuke-wise, or perhaps we really don't know how many booby traps there are right now at other facilities, there's a couple ways you can contact the show. Uh, and maybe tell me, hopefully, how many booby traps you put in my house. We are available on Twitter at Nuclear Podcast. I have a website, supercriticalpodcast.com, where we put a lot of our, our show notes as well as links and resources uh, based on the, the research we did for each episode. You can also email me at supercriticalpodcast at gmail.com. I've gotten a bunch of wonderful emails uh, over the last couple of weeks here, and I always forward those to the guests or to Gabe, and it's always just a wonderful thing, particularly during the COVID time period. Uh, it's a nice little positive point in our lives. So I always do appreciate when people email the show. So until next time, this has been Tim Westmeyer. And Gabe. And Stephen. And remember, if it's pop culture and radioactive, we're bound to get super critical about it. Have a good one.